You know, every once in a while, the dumpster fire that is social media coughs up something enjoyable. Uh, dare I say it, even edifying. I don't know if you have seen it cross your Facebook feed yet, but if not, I'd encourage you to seek out Judge Frank Caprio from Providence, Rhode Island. His uh, website, there, the, the videos come from, is called Caught in Providence. And Judge Frank Caprio is the chief municipal judge for Providence, Rhode Island, and his courtroom is the scene of many funny and poignant moments of mercy. Uh, he deals with kind of petty crime. So uh, some traffic issues, uh, some jaywalking issues, other things that don't quite rise to the level of someone needing a defense attorney to represent them in front of a judge. And so these men and women appear before him, and everyone's playing a little bit to the cameras that are in the courtroom. But the folks that come are really guilty. They've come because they know they're guilty, and the judge knows they're guilty. The bailiff knows they're guilty. But there's also almost always a hard luck aspect. A lot of the people that come before the judge are elderly. Many of them are poor. Many of them are just the kind of people who can't seem to get out of their own way, that life is just increasingly difficult for them. And now they're in front of a judge, the face of the law that they broke, but instead of condemnation, more often than not, they receive mercy. I think part of the reason that Judge Caprio has become a viral sensation online is because our culture is in desperate need of mercy today. Within the last month, I've read two articles, one in the New Yorker magazine and one at the online site Vox, and both articles are arguing for a change in our culture. The one in the New Yorker talks about the shaming industrial complex, the fact that shame becomes a weapon in the hands of the mob. The one on Vox is titled, Everyone Wants Forgiveness, But No One Is Being Forgiven. Both articles come in the wake of the cancel culture that is prominently on display in social media that demands justice, often at the expense of mercy. Reading both articles, it's fascinating to hear who I, the authors who I assume are not Christians, they don't appeal to any sort of Christian morality for the basis of their argument, but it's fascinating to read through both articles and get to the end and realize that they don't have anything to offer their readers. There's no hope for the readers who are stuck in this cycle of justice. They have diagnosed the problem correctly but they don't know what the solution is. And I wonder if some of you find yourself in a similar situation this morning. You are stuck in a cycle of justice. You're unable to escape the consequences of your sin. And maybe that doesn't mean that you have to go and appear before Judge Frank Caprio. Maybe 
you don't actually have to appear before anybody because the condemnation is interior. You know that you've broken God's law. You know the cost and the consequences of your sin and your family and your extended network. And you just can't get out of it. You're longing for mercy. Well, you need a king of mercy. And that king is described for us here in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, This passage is actually part of a song. Uh, It's a song that stretches all the way back. If you have your Bibles, you can turn and look. It's from chapter 32, verse 1, all the way through chapter 32, verse 43. And you thought some of our hymns were long. This is a long song called the Song of Moses, and it's some of Moses's final words to the people of Israel. Soon he will ascend Mount Nebo, and he will die, and there the Lord will bury him. Already he has begun to transfer the leadership of Israel to Joshua, his assistant. And Joshua will be the one who moves the people of Israel forward into the land of promise. And in this song, Moses is essentially rehearsing the history of Israel as a way to point them forward to the future so that they will be faithful to God. The song returns again and again to the theme of God's faithfulness, that God is faithful even when his people are not faithful faithful. And in many ways, Moses is anticipating what he already knows has happened in the past. He's anticipating that it will happen again in the future. In the past, God's people have been unfaithful. That's part of the reason that they have spent 40 years wandering around the desert before they're able to go into the promised land. And Moses knows that this is a stiff-necked people. And because that Israel is the same people, in the future, they're going to need to have these reminders of God's mercy and faithfulness to them. We're picking up the song at verse 36, which anticipates a day that God will vindicate his people, verse 36 says, and have compassion on his servants. Why will God need to do this? Well, if you look at the end of verse 36, it's because the nation is powerless and they've been decimated. The previous verses of the song tell how sometimes Israel suffers God's judgment and sometimes God lets the enemies of Israel wreak havoc on his people. And God wants them to understand that part of the reason they are in this situation is because they themselves continue to sin. They've brought this on themselves. That's why in verse 37, he asks this rhetorical question. Where are the gods that you trusted in? God is making Israel face the uncomfortable truth that much of their suffering is the result of their own sin. Instead of trusting in God alone, they often turned to idol worship. 
This wasn't just a problem in the past. This is going to be a problem even in the future. And of course, these idols are powerless. Israel turns to them as a kind of refuge. God says, that God even uses a word, the rock. Where, where are these rocks? Well, that word is used over and over and over again in the previous verses of this song to describe God. And so God is telling Israel that you have treated these dumb idols as if they are counterparts to me. You've even offered sacrifices to them. But these aren't gods at all. They can't even move. Much less can they protect you when you're in trouble. Instead, verse 39, God says, there is only one true God. I have the power of life and death. I am the one who executes perfect justice. I am the one who will protect you from all of your enemies, even though you don't deserve it. Even though you brought this misery on yourself, even though you deserve judgment, I will avenge you, verse 43 says, and I will cleanse your land. Over the previous 40 years, God's people had experienced moments of God's mercy. God had sustained them with miraculous food and drink. God had given them victory over their enemies. And now they're on the cusp, on the border of the promised land. The thing that's been held out to them from their slavery in Egypt is now within their grasp. But Moses knows that Israel will fall into sin again and again and again. And the nation as a whole needs this song to be playing in their collective mind as a kind of reminder to seek God's mercy, to look for it in their moment of need. And friends, that's what the people of Israel believed they saw the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That's why they laid out the palm branches. That's why they called out Hosanna, which by that point in Israel's history was a song of praise, but it originated as a cry for help. It means, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they called out to Jesus. Because they believed that in Jesus, they saw that God had remembered his mercy. They believed that in Jesus, God was coming to somehow vindicate them and cleanse their land. And of course, they were right. That's exactly what Jesus intended to do. But the people of Israel, that first Palm Sunday, they didn't realize the steep price that would need to be paid for them to know and experience the mercy of God. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem to cries of praise and adoration. Short five days later, a different cry would echo in the city streets as Jesus was led to his death. Crucify him. Crucify him. On the cross, 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus becomes, in a sense, the enemy that is described in Deuteronomy 32. The one against whom God will unleash his judgment. He will suffer the flashing sword of vengeance and justice. The arrows drunk with blood will in some way be lodged in his flesh as the punishment of God. And because he suffers in that way, he atones for his people. That's the word that is used in verse 43. When we talk about cleansing the land, it's the word for atonement, for covering. He literally will make atonement. He will cover the sin. He will forgive the people and cover over the sacrifice. Now that first Palm Sunday as the people watch Jesus descend into the city, that isn't what they were expecting from a king. Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they thought they needed because they didn't see that the biggest problem was, around, was in them rather than around them. You know, they thought the Roman occupiers, that's the problem. The corrupt priesthood, that's the problem. The collaborating rulers, those are the problems. That's who they need to be delivered from. That's the enemy against whom God's judgment needs to be poured out. But Jesus knew that the real problem wasn't out there. The real problem is in here. And the only way to cleanse the pollution of sin is death. And God, who Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, is rich in mercy, subjected himself to his own justice so that we could be raised to new life. On Sunday nights, a group of us come outside on beautiful evenings and enjoy a study through a book called Gentle and Lowly. And the author is Dane Ortland, another PCA pastor, and in that book he makes the following point. He says, if mercy was simply something God had, there would be a limit to how much mercy he could dole out. But because mercy is who God is, he is simply being himself when he shows mercy. Friends, I think that's what's missing from our culture today. That's the answer that the authors in The New Yorker and on Vox couldn't come up with. We thought that without God, we would all be a lot more tolerant. We thought that we would finally be rid of the rules and the punishment and the condemnation and the righteousness. We thought we would be merciful where God 
had only been condemning. But what we have found is that the human capacity for mercy is limited because it's not who we are. But it is who God is. It's His mercy, we read in verse 36, that compels Him to vindicate His people. What a wild idea. Do you understand how bizarre that is? To vindicate means that you've actually already always been innocent. And that somehow there was a miscarriage of justice, a a misunderstanding. And some new evidence has come to light that you're not actually really guilty. Vindication assumes that there's some mistake. That the judicial system has gotten it wrong. But of course you know and I know and Moses knows and Israel knows and God knows that there is no one that is righteous. No, not one. Not there in the desert on the other side of the River Jordan and not here in Austin, Texas. Already here in Deuteronomy, we have an echo of what Paul says in the book of Romans, that it is God's mercy that compels him to justify the wicked. To justify the ungodly. Not to rescue and raise those who just needed a little bit of help to get along. But to raise from the dead those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. To give to them the righteous record of Jesus Christ. So that his past, his present, his future is theirs. As if it was always theirs. It's his mercy that compels him to vindicate his people. And he will have compassion on his people. Friends, I need you to see that both of those things are equally true. God isn't out merely to do some heavenly accounting so that you are righteous in his sight. And then he kind of passes over you because that took a lot out of him. And he's not sure he really wants to deal with you. No, he also has compassion on his servants. Friends, the mercy of God doesn't just stop at a proper legal standing. It encompasses the relational need that we all have for a father's love. I wonder this morning, to whom are you waving your palm branch? To whom are you calling out, Hosanna, save me, rescue me? Who are you looking for, or where are you looking for rescue and relief? I think a lot of us try to find it in the acceptance of other people. As long as I am accepted, as long as No one looks down on me as as long as they appreciate me for who I am, then I'll be okay. Or maybe we're looking for it in a slightly larger bank account, trying to find it, the seats at the political table. 
Or maybe we are hanging on tight to a spouse or to a child, saying, you're my righteousness. You're the one that tells me that everything will be okay. Friends, none of those people, none of those institutions, none of those material goods can rise up and and rescue you. None can really be your protection because none of them are rich in mercy. But God is. That's why we can cry out, Hosanna. Because he has the power and he has the desire to rescue us. Blessed is the King of mercy who came to suffer in his own body the just judgment against our sin so that the God who is rich in mercy can vindicate you and can have compassion on you. Let's pray. Father, we keep getting it wrong, thinking that the enemy is out there when every day we show ourselves in our natural state to be worthy of divine judgment. We keep getting it wrong, thinking that somehow we have to prove ourselves worthy of your love and not remembering that you are rich in mercy. Oh God, lift our eyes away from the idols of our age and fix them on the King of mercy who rides into our life. May we worship him and cry out to him with the praises of your people. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.